Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you'd take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And while you're turning, I just want to give you a quick report. It was an amazing youth camp that they had. Uh, Students came to Christ, and we're so grateful for all the prayers that you gave and your giving. It helps make that happen. Relationships develop. We're going to report a lot more on it for you in the next week or two via video, etc. So again, thanks for all your support for Kids Camp. It went really well. So Acts chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 36. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee from the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth from the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, referencing the cross. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, we are sincerely thankful for the free gift of salvation that you've offered to us. And we're also thankful for the understanding of the warnings that are to come, that we might show love and kindness and tell others of your glorious gospel. May you receive glory to your own name alone today. Amen. If you are visiting or watching online for the very first time today, we want to welcome you, but there there is a great risk that you are going to misunderstand who Jesus is or misunderstand what the scriptures teach about him. Because you have not heard the last four weeks' messages. Even if you're a regular attender and you've been on vacation or somewhere, if you miss the previous talks, you carry the same risk. We're in a series called The Portraits of Jesus Christ. Jim covered first that Jesus has the bread of life, a very uh, profound symbol, meaning that even the uneducated in history could understand what he was talking about. Mike Myers covered Jesus as the good shepherd. He gave his life for the sheep. He is our provider and our protector. Then Jim covered Jesus as gentle and lowly in heart, the only place in scripture where Jesus described himself. He elaborated on the implications his grace and kindness have on us today. And last week, Tony Padroni covered Jesus as our life, launching from a chapter three in Galatians, And then he used the entire book of Colossians, excuse me, to highlight a list of remarkable benefits and blessings for us. And this morning we look at Christ as judge. The portrait of Jesus is profoundly sobering. If you were here out of curiosity or continuing to explore and ponder uh, spiritual things and who God is and what the implications are for you, please keep in mind that my talk is primarily directed and prepared for those who attend on a regular basis and would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. We are glad you are here. We hope you come back again, continuing to 
uh, ask your questions. Uh, but today is a warning and not a winsome appeal. It is a hard talk that enrages both our Western society and most nations on earth. So again, if you missed the previous messages, go back and hear those so you don't misunderstand who Jesus is. So let's begin with Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge. The passage we read precedes an unfolding drama where a devout Gentile centurion named Cornelius, he had a, the angels visited him and he had a dream. And they told him to go ahead and ask and send for Peter, who was in Joppa. So Cornelius gets three guys, sends them to Joppa. Peter agrees to come back with them. <clears throat> and so on their way, just before they arrive, Cornelius is fasting for four days. Peter shows up. Cornelius gathers his whole family together and says, Okay, what do you have to say to us? Tell us God's truth. <clears throat> and so Peter explains to them, and the last statement we saw that he said was that Jesus Christ is ordained to be the judge of the living and the dead. Support for this reality comes from the Apostle John, who said this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. God gave Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Furthermore, when Paul was at Athens trying to persuade people, he said this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Obvious reference to Jesus. Paul wrote to the Romans that God would judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. He wrote to Timothy, that Jesus Christ would judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And finally, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is filled with references to him judging. What are some of the, Jesus, the qualifications that Jesus has to judge? Well, all of you know what happens in our country when a president goes to a, a, a recommend a, a judge for an appellate position where there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, so they want to nominate somebody, and he comes up to the podium or people in the, in the uh, media, and one of the first things he says, I'm very proud to introduce to you today <clears throat> Judge Diana Farthing Jones. Judge Jones is eminently qualified. She has received a perfect score on her LSATs while she was in the ninth grade. <laughs> she has clerked for the Honorable Justice William P. Wright. She's been three years as a district attorney in the state of New York, She's also spent four years on the appellate circuit, the Sixth Circuit. She's earned the position of partner at the prestigious law firm of Swindler, Cheatham, and Hyde. <laughs> she has argued before the Supreme Court a dozen times, and they go on and on. Well, Jesus is even more eminently and supremely qualified. As the Son of God, he has royal birth. He's the only one that was born of a virgin. Hebrews, the writer there, said this, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, referring to Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so that tells you that he had a royal birth and he was a sinless person. His education is unparalleled. I mean, Jesus can, in Jesus is all the wisdom and knowledge. He's omniscient. 
He proved that the one time. Remember when he was with Nathaniel? Met him for the first time. He says, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel was several miles away from Jesus when he was under the fig tree. So he immediately knew that there was no way Jesus knew he was there. How is that possible? And he bowed down before him and said, you are Lord. And he's he's also qualified by his character. In Revelation, he's called faithful and true. He can't be bribed with money because he owns everything. And with a word of his mouth, he can create whatever he wants. He can't be seduced by women. He's lust free. He can't be blackmailed. There's no skeletons in his closet. Even Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He's qualified by his discernment. Jesus constantly confounded the crowds to the point where they said, no man has ever spoken like this man. And he's qualified by his experience. He faced the toughest temptations and all the tricky questions meant to expose him and to condemn him. Remember in the wilderness, he was fasting for 40 days. The devil comes to him and says, hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And he said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And then a bunch of people came to him, you recall this, said, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, look, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And so they handed him a denarius, and Jesus asked, well, whose head is this? And whose title and inscription is on it? And they respond, well, Caesar's. And Jesus said, therefore, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And as we read in our text this morning, as we read there, he is appointed by God himself. There, there's no election. There's no committee meeting. He was appointed. Scripture says repeatedly, Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He is completely without bias and without prejudice. So when it's time for the final judgment of all the living and the dead, there is not going to be any judge shopping. No second-guessing a decision because he was appointed by some president. Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. As a member of the Godhead, he was there in the beginning when judgment was pronounced upon the angels and also upon Adam and Eve. And he will be there in the end as the final judge when the devils, demons, and all who reject his unfathomable love are cast into what is called the lake of fire, which is the second death. So Jesus is the final judge. But what is judgment? You know, people in every society throughout history has understood the importance of judgment. It is one critical component to establishing and maintaining some semblance of order in a society or in a home or an institution. Can you imagine if thieves weren't judged and they just were allowed to walk into stores with a bag just take stuff and walk right out, what would happen? You know, stores would close, insurance rates for property would go up, and then it would encourage many more people to do the same thing because there's no consequence. Well, we don't have to imagine it, do we? It's happening in some of our inner cities today. And so tracing the Old Testament, would repeat, we'd repeatedly find that the Hebrews understood Yahweh as a God of judgment. No one taught him judgment. Judgment is as natural to the Heavenly Father as flying is to birds. Over nine times he is called judge, with Abraham calling him the judge of all the earth. There are multiple words used in the Old Testament which are translated judge, judging, or judgment. 
And if you take those words in total, they convey the following ideas. Rule, protection by means of justice, deliverance, vindication, punishment, calling to account, conducting a lawsuit, intervening. But the thread running through all the words used for judgment is to accomplish justice as God sees it and defines it. This was a vital role of kings. They were to properly dispense legal disputes, and they sat as the final court of appeal. Additionally, a king had the power to enforce his judicial decisions. In the nation of Israel, judging was to always be in line with the words and commands of God, because he is holy and right. Judging is very important throughout all Jewish history. It contained the idea of distinguishing between parties. Moses said, I judge between a man and his neighbor. The Israelites asked Samuel, hey, give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. And Solomon prayed at the beginning of his reign to be given an understanding heart to judge God's people. The book of Judges chronicles the people that ruled the nation. And it was judging in much more than a legal sense. It wasn't just ruling as a magistrate might do but it was a spiritual activity connected to God. Outside the nation of Israel, of course, there were kings, there were chiefs, there were tribunals, there were councils, all set for the purpose of judging. Leaders would sit in judgment and decide controversies, vindicating or condemning the accused. Some pagan judges would even take somebody who was accused and they just throw him in the river. And if he uh, was able to swim, come to shore, well, then he was innocent. If he drowned, well, he was guilty. Thus, the scriptures teach us, relieve the oppressed, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Because we have to distinguish between what is right, and we have to uh, act on what is right. And that sometimes means helping out those who are widows and those who are orphans. You know, the scripture in Micah, the song we have, which says, what, what, the, what has the Lord shown you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A complete study would reveal that judgment is inseparable from the covenant God had with his people. And if we were really to go through this, it would be a, a classes, and, and it would take many sermons to cover judgment from the Old Testament to the New. In places in our country, and deeply entrenched around the world, There is one law for the rich and well-connected, and another for the poor and lowly. But unlike man's judgment, the Lord's judgment is perfect. Many scriptures in the Psalms and elsewhere confirm this. What the Hebrew rejoiced in was God's justice was not constrained with merits and demerits, as if it was a balancing scale. But instead, they knew that they found their home in God's loving kindness, His righteousness and mercy. That is something we rejoice in too. That's why Jeremiah wrote that the mercies of God are new every morning. God's love does not change when showing mercy at one time and wrath at another, any more than we do when we reward a child for good behavior and discipline him for disobedience. It's a love of men and a love of what's right. It's not one or the other. The Old Testament also kept a future judgment in sight. To this day, there continues to be a profound disconnect between the will of God and between society's existing social order all over the world. 
And a final judgment is coming where eventually God will rectify everything. As the psalmist wrote, For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. A reasonable summation is this. Judging means settling a dispute, making things right. Judgment is the process whereby one discerns between right and wrong and takes action as a result. To judge came to mean to help a man obtain his rights. So Jesus is the judge. Number two, Jesus judges everyone. Jesus judges everyone. From our beginning text in Acts, it states that Jesus judges the living and the dead. And the living and the dead are divided into two groups. You have those who are followers of Jesus Christ, within whom his Holy Spirit lives. And you have those who do not believe in him and reject him. Two groups. And they cover a long spectrum, the group that does not believe or follow Jesus. Some deny his deity. Others worship idols. Many think their good works will save them. Today in our society, some are very comfortable boasting that they don't believe in Jesus or the scriptures, but instead they believe in science. But they purposely ignore how every discipline of science points to the Lord because he is the author of true science. For us who are genuine believers, it is written that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due while in our body, whether good or evil. You can see that verse on the screen. And what the judgment seat of Christ is all about is it's called in the Greek the Bema seat. So the Bema seat was a place where there were steps, as you see, and it led up to some type of altar. Herod built one in Caesarea, and it was a place where he would give speeches and also watch games. And when there were games, at the end of a game, the people who won, you know, first, second, and third prize that we're used to, they come up to the Bema seat and they receive their rewards. It's not a place where they were judged, where they were punished. And so this isn't, the the judgment seat of Christ is not the idea that he's going to look at you and go, hey, why did you do that on such and such a day? And by the way, how come you neglected to do that last week? What were you thinking That's not what the judgment seat of Christ is about. It's where we receive rewards or a loss of rewards. And so that's an incredible joy and relief for all of us. The emphasis is not on a man's salvation or foundational relationship to Christ, but upon his service flowing from his union to Christ. Although we could give an entire Sunday or two on this, I just want to move on today. To number three, the eternal judgment of hell. Jesus is the judge. Jesus judges everyone. And number three, the eternal judgment of hell. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he made it clear that he did not come to judge. He came to seek and to save those which were lost. Remember the guy who spoke to Jesus and said, Hey, master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Hey, man, who made me a judge over you? In John's gospel, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, referring to himself. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And he said, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so while Jesus, in his first coming, did not come to judge, nevertheless, he warned about a terrible future judgment, a place of unbearable eternal horror. It is referenced in our memory verse, and it's a reality called hell. And before I say anything more, I'd like all of you to please listen very, very carefully. Some of you have lost people you've loved very much family members, neighbors, loved ones. And during the time you knew them, they gave you no evidence that they believed in Jesus Christ. Others of you have dear friends or loved ones that are sick today, and you are concerned about their eternal destiny. Some of you have children and grandchildren, and you know they're living a worldly, proud, just self-centered, selfish lifestyle, and they have no interest in talking about spiritual things. And it's very concerning. And you already have enough struggles in your life. And what Jesus says about this topic can leave you very discouraged and depressed. Please resist wrong thinking. Jesus did not give us these warnings and insights into his future judgments to depress anyone. He wants us to maintain a vigilance in our prayers and an urgency in our engagement with family and others. He wants us saying and doing things that sow the seeds of the gospel. One plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. So as I talk, please don't dwell on the past. Blame yourself or veer off course into thinking, well, what if? The fact is the Lord does not give us the responsibility and discernment to make judgments on the eternal condition of those who have died or will die. The scriptures are clear that Jesus alone is the one who knows the hearts of people and he will send his angels to do the separating. Jesus saves people even on their deathbed and I know of examples. Remember, Jesus saved the thief on the cross in his dying hours. Even Paul said to the Corinthians church, he said, you know, it's a small thing that you would judge me or that I'd even be judged of a human court. You know, I don't even judge myself. Instead, Um, it's the Lord who's going to judge me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time. What time? When the Lord returns, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And that is something you and I cannot do. The Lord is patient towards all of us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter wrote that. The warnings and descriptions are meant to sober us and motivate us as we further understand the holiness and justice of God. So Jesus mentions a place called hell. The word hell is part of the vocabulary of many people. Most use it as a curse word. At sporting events, the home team normally uses it to tell the opponents just where they ought to go. The profanity and joking about it all contribute to people having little serious thought about this most serious place. Some see it as a mere symbol 
describing severe suffering on earth. War is a living hell, someone once said. And others view it as a myth. Many religious groups oppose the idea of eternal punishment on the basis that a God of love could never do such a thing. Like a sentimental parent that refuses to notice the mistakes and faults of their children, they have trouble accepting that sin has to be punished for eternity by those that didn't believe in Jesus. Theologically, many conclude that the teaching of endless punishment turns people away from faith in Christ. They rhetorically state, do you really think a good God could torment sinners forever? They invent nuances and philosophies to explain it away. Next slide, please. The judgment, the last judgment that you see on the screen is a fresco by the Italian Renaissance painter Michelangelo. And it's covering the whole altar wall of the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. It's a depiction of the second coming of Christ and the final and eternal judgment by God on everyone. Dante's famous poem, The Divine Comedy, came to symbolize Western literature's theory of everything. He completed it in 1320, just one year before he died. If you're old, you probably had to read it in uh, high school. And so it had three parts, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and Paradiso. The Inferno describes Dante's journey through hell. He dramatically elaborates on the horrible physical torments of hell as he imagined it. Widely seen and widely read, the fresco and the inferno shaped more people's views of hell than what the scriptures present. In the King James, the word hell appears 52 times. It has been translated from the Hebrew word Sheol in the Old Testament and three Greek words in the New Testament, Gienna, Hades, and Tataros. Sheol usually referred to as the place where good and evil people went, the place of the dead. Gehenna is used 11 times by Jesus. Next slide. And it literally means the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom came from the Hebrew word for lamentation. And the valley was still located in the southeast part, just outside Jerusalem during Jesus' day. So listen to this. During the day of Ahaz and Manasseh, some Jews erected a temple dedicated to the Canaanite fire god Molech. Worshiping Molech included putting a baby in the arms of the heated idol and burning it to death. So there would be the cries and screams of the baby and there would be the wailing and mourning of the mother. Thankfully, Josiah destroyed that pagan temple. Afterwards, the Valley of Hinnom became a despised place to the Jews. The place was so despised that they dumped their trash in the valley, and they kept to keep it sanitary, there was a continuous fire that was always burning. And so Gehenna, or hell, offered an image to express Jesus' words, warning of a place of eternal destruction and something that was abominable. Tataru, which is a verb, not a noun, the noun is Tataris. Tataru is only used one time and it's in Peter. And it's, it says the process of being imprisoned, restrained, casting down. And it took on the same meaning for the Greeks that Gehenna meant for the Jews, the abode of the wicked dead. 
In Peter, it says this, the second letter. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until, under punishment until the day of judgment. The unrighteous under punishment. Excuse me. Jesus had more to say about hell than any other person. And he spoke about it in his parables. One example is in Matthew chapter 13. Next slide, please. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is described as a place, as a furnace of fire, as outer darkness, and a condition that is eternal. Words associated with hell are destruction, condemnation, wrath, perishing, and burning fire. Jesus warned people about hell, stating that it would be better to lose your eye or to have your hand cut off than to be cast there. Jesus would not warn like this of a fictitious place. Next slide. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians in his second letter, said this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation chapter 20 adds to these warnings. The chapter mentions a bottomless pit and a lake of fire where death and Hades are cast eventually. It's referred to as the second death. We die physically on earth, that's the first death. The second death is our separation of our soul and spirit from the Lord forever in a place of torment, away from the presence of Christ. Jesus doesn't only warn about a judgment when the unbeliever dies. He also warns of a judgment for people on earth. So having considered the eternal judgment of hell, let's now consider number four, the earthly judgment of the great tribulation. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 26. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If a favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. The tribulation period gives people one last chance to repent and receive the salvation of our merciful Savior. What is in Revelation is a deterrent for the judgment of hell. It is reminiscent of the ten plagues in Egypt that finally got the Pharaoh to change his mind. While I was in French class as a junior in high school, I, I conjugated some verbs on my hand. 
I cheated. Somehow the teacher saw that I did, came and took my test, threw it into the trash can, and asked me to stop by her desk when I was done. So I stood there, and I, was, I knew I'd be getting an F, but instead I got a zero. Let me tell you, it's very hard when you only have a semester left in a class to bring a zero up to pass the class, and I didn't pass it. And so I learned my lesson from that judgment, never to cheat again, and I didn't. When the disciples asked Jesus about what would be the sign of the second coming and of the end of the world, he explained many things in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. You're familiar with an awful lot of them. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Kingdom will rise against kingdom, nation against nation. And there will be earthquakes and famines in various places. Persecution and hatred will abound because the love of many will grow cold. And those things have existed in every generation but will intensify in the future, especially during the seven-year tribulation period. Then Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. There will be great tribulation lasting three and a half years. It is sudden. It comes like a thief in the night. There is no time to prepare. It is sure there is no way to escape. And it is severe. The destruction and ruin will abound. The judgment and consequences Jesus brings forth on humanity are frightening and they are alarming. Pain, loss, suffering, destruction, and death such as the world has never seen before. This wrath is elaborated on beginning in Revelation chapter 6, and running right through chapter 16. The manner and method of judgment is presented as the opening of seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets, and the pouring out of seven bowls. A summary depiction is sobering enough. There is no need for graphic depictions. From the opening of the seven seals, the consequences of the wrath of God during this time includes the following. Peace is taken from the earth as people kill each other and die by disease and wild animals. There's a severe famine illustrated by a loaf of bread costing a day's wage. That means there'll be supply shortages and currencies will be all messed up. Despair and disruption of commerce and society will exist. There'll be a loss of teachers, of doctors, of law enforcement, a loss of farmers, tradesmen, etc., then there's a great earthquake occurring, resulting in the destruction of towns and homes, roads and bridges. The sun becomes dark and the moon red like blood. The sky is rolled up, and I'm not sure what that means. It's rolled up like a scroll. And the mountains and islands are moved. All of this causes people from kings to slaves to go and hide in caves. Then the seventh seal is opened. And then comes the blowing of the seven trumpets. This could be called the judgment of the one-third. Because one-third of the earth, one-third of the sea and what lives in it, a third of the ships, the springs and the rivers, a third of the day and night experience different consequences. The scripture says that locusts will sting like a scorpion and harm people for five months 
that do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The pain is so severe that people want to die, but they don't. And at the sixth trumpet, one-third of the people on the earth are killed. And yet, after all of that, it is written in Revelation chapter 9. Next slide, please. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, of their sexual immorality or their thefts. What an indictment on the heart of mankind. And what an indictment on us had the mercy of God not saved us. The seventh trumpet initiates the seven bowls of God's wrath. Again, a summary. Sores break out on everyone that, the mark of the, that has the mark of the beast, and what is left in the sea dies. Men are scorched with great heat, and they blaspheme the name of God. Followers of the devil grind their teeth in anguish and pain, cursing the God of heaven. Revelation 16 says this, And every island fled away, and no mountains were found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The great tribulation, to sum it up, it is a judgment upon mankind and his religious systems, a judgment upon man's economic and political systems, a judgment upon man's military systems, and upon man himself, upon the Antichrist and the false prophet, and upon the devil and his fallen angels. And then that leads to the great white throne judgment at the end in Revelation 20. So there's an incredible major impact that all of this has. So the question becomes, why did I go over all of this? All of you, most of you here are followers of Jesus Christ and probably most of you online. And I put this together because there's one particular application, if you will, that I want you to take away. One major impact should happen from all of this as we cover these portraits of Jesus Christ and this one is judge. And that is that Paul said in writing to the Corinthians, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade people. We persuade people. And that word terror there, it's sometimes used the reverential fear of, of Christ, but it also means terror. And so what we've rehearsed this morning is the terror of the Lord. And so he wants us to have that in mind, to stay urgent, vigilant, sober, so that we're going about persuading people. That means we pass out gospel tracts, places when we don't have time to talk to somebody. It means other times we take the time to invite them over, a neighbor over, and just have a meal, just to get to know them, so that they feel accepted just the way they are, so they feel loved and cared for and are treated with dignity. And then from that, Lord willing, you'll have a chance someday to be able to ask them, hey, what do you think of Jesus? What's your understanding of eternal life? We do this, we, we sow seed everywhere we can. We invite people to things, events, churches, to listen to blogs, messages, whatever. We work really hard and really well at our place of business with a, with a smile, with enthusiasm. And why do we do that? Because nobody else is doing that. 
they're all cheating and grumpy and complaining and whining. But we with a good spirit, and then people are saying, what's up with you? How come you're always here in a pretty good mood doing your work? And you say, well, can we get lunch and I'll, I'll talk to you about it. And you go back to work. You don't share the gospel while you're supposed to work. And so this is what we are to be doing, persuading people, because we know what is coming. And you heard what Jim mentioned. If you missed, if you weren't here on time to hear Jim's uh, uh, announcement about the engagement project. So come this fall, there's something we're asking everybody to get involved in called the engagement project. I don't like the word project because it communicates, oh, I got a wood project. I start it and then I finish it and I'm done. No, it was a project for the one who put together the teaching. He began the teaching and he had an end. But for us, it's something that will restir in us the priorities of Christ for all of our earthly days. And it's called the Engagement Project. And even if all the shepherd groups are going to go through it, all the pastors have already been through it, the, um, uh, the staff has gone through this, and it's a very good tool. So even if you're not in a shepherd group, we're going to end up in the future weeks telling you more about it. You'll be able to sign up and register and we'll hold some uh, classes on a Sunday evening here. It's that important. Remember that we were told that we are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, so that we can reconcile people to God through Jesus Christ and reconcile people to one another. We're all ambassadors, and we have to engage with other people to be an ambassador. We pray for open doors. Sometimes with family, friends, neighbors, I mean, that door is shut tight and it's been that way for many, many years. And each time you try to have a conversation, they go, not now, thanks so much. You've got your truth and I've got mine, not interested. So we just continue to pray. We love and pray, love and pray. We don't stop. And so I want you to recall that our memory verse talked about that there's a literal hell and there's also a judgment coming on people. And remember the scripture that said, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, every time we read the book of Revelation and other scriptures which talk about what is to come and the destiny of men that don't know you, that die, uh, it sobers us. But it's meant to have us with joyfulness tell people the greatest news that we've ever heard, which is that you have provided salvation as a free gift for anyone who will place their faith in you, believe that you're Lord, acknowledge that they're a sinner, and that God has raised you from the dead. And I pray if anyone's come in here today or has watched online and doesn't know you, that they will humble themselves before you and ask you to save them today. And Lord, as we sing, and we should sing, for when we are presented before your judgment seat, it's going to be a great time of receiving rewards, which is unbelievable, that you would reward us when we've deserved nothing, even beyond our salvation, at a place where there's no more crying, suffering, or tears forever. And so, Father, thank you for this day. And may you receive our song in our heart. Amen.